Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. At the 2022 Convention of States Reclaiming Liberty Summit, David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, gives a presentation on American exceptionalism. It's hard to know what the right things are and what the wrong things are unless you know your history. We all know that one of the problems in the country right now is that they are abusing our history. They are erasing our history. They are rewriting our history. Things like the 1619 Project, saying that that's when America was founded and it was founded on slavery. That's an absolute lie. It's not real history. It's not, it's nothing, it's fake. It's not fake news, it's fake history, right? And this is what they're trying to do to the country. You heard Rick say, if you don't know, and this is a Reagan quote, if you don't know what you've done, then you don't know who you are. If you can't look back on our history all the way to the founding and before and understand the roots of the nation and and the foundation of the nation, if we don't remember that, if we don't learn it, if we don't know it, if we don't spread that around, if we, we, you in this room, if we don't teach that, then we lose it. It goes away. It drifts into the mist of history, never to be found again, maybe to be found by some scholars hundreds of years from now when they look and try and figure out why the country fell. One of the things I think they would say if that actually happens is they would say they forgot who they were. They forgot their history. They forgot where they came from. They forgot what the foundations of their country were. I think there's one person in this country right now who is doing more and has done more to remind us of the foundations of the country, our history, our heritage, our spiritual foundation than anybody else. And again, I'm going to run a theme here. And And I didn't mean this. This just keeps happening, which is this is about friends of Convention of States. This is about people that we can rely on. This is about people we love, friends of ours who will step up and be in the fight with us when things go wrong, because things do go wrong. And so there, this is a person that I call when it hits the fan, when something goes wrong, when I need something, and he always responds. He'll answer the phone, he'll text me back right away, and he does the things that we need to help Convention of States. So in addition to teaching the country about its real history and making sure we don't fit, I mean, we don't forget, he is a true friend of Convention of States, a true believer in the Convention of States project. So it is my honor and privilege to introduce the one, the only America's historian, David Barton. Thanks. Now, right up front, I'm a person of faith. Most of us are. We're certainly not faith hostile. So I'm going to cover some history uh, on faith and then some history on really political affairs and history and then show you where it goes with politics today. So let me do some historical presentation. I'm going to start with John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, uh, President John Quincy Adams actually wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. This is what President Adams told them. He said, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. 
He says, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year, and that wasn't American practice. That's why he's telling 10-year-old kids, look, this is what we do in America. You need to read the Bible cover, cover once a year. Now, that's a book done by precedent. Significantly, if I take you back and show you educational policy, I can take you back in the classrooms that go all the way back to 1647, which is when the first public school law was passed in America. If I show you what happened in the classrooms, it's very interesting. I can choose any of the states. I can choose any of the territories. I want to go to New Jersey for just a moment. New Jersey schools in 1816. I want you to see the report of the state of New Jersey on what students and schools were doing in first and second grade in 1816. The report says, all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. Now this is your first and second graders in public schools in New Jersey. Everybody memorizes Psalms and New Testament and catechism and hymns and whatever the preacher talked about on Sunday. We're going to memorize those Bible verses. And they did point out that they did, they did have one kid in the state who was a little bit sharper than the other kids. Now, we're talking first and second grade here. So six, seven years old, somewhere in that vicinity. It says one of the scholars has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. Now, that's a first grader, and that's a really sharp one. Everybody else, they weren't quite that sharp. It says the majority have committed to memory the gospel by John. I do not know a single Christian I've ever met today who's memorized the gospel of John, and yet in 1816, all the first graders and second graders in New Jersey had memorized the gospel of John. So we did read the Bible cover to cover once a year. It is the book that produced more freedom than any other nation in the world. It's the book that built our founding fathers. And we kept this going literally for centuries. If I take you to the public schools of Pennsylvania in 1892, I want to show you the report done by the State Board of Education to all the teachers in the state on here's what you need to be doing every week in the schools as you go through the year. This is what they say. They said, in the selections for the week, and this is memorization. You're doing memorization with the kids during the week. It says, in the selections for the week, let the, let the, uh, let the selections be a possible two in number. The first from the Bible or sacred song, and the second from the world of literature, prose, or verse. So every week we're going to memorize two things. One's a Bible chapter, and one is something from literature. It continues as, say, the 90th Psalm and Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg. Or, lead kindly light and Longfellow's Psalm of Life. Or, the 23rd Psalm and Lowell's Once to Every Man or Nation, or the 19th Psalm and Home Sweet Home, or My Country Tis of Thee and the Chambered Nautilus, or the 13th chapter of Corinthians and the Last Rose of Summer, or any of the other things of hundreds, hundreds of things, moral, religious, patriotic, descriptive, or sentimental, in the best sense of the world, that we would all be very glad to have securely lodged in our memory. Now, this is Pennsylvania Public Schools, 1892, two memory sections a week. One chapter out of the Bible and something else from the literature like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Again, I'm not familiar with anyone who memorizes a chapter a week. This is what Americans did in public school even in 1892. And by the way, I love what the State Board of Education said to the teachers. You're gonna have the kids memorize these two sections. Look what else they said. It says, and let the teacher always commit to memory what is here required of the pupil. So the teacher had to memorize everything the kids had to memorize. This was so much a part of who we were as a nation that in 1844, there was a case that came to the U.S. Supreme Court called Vidal versus Girard's Executors. In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court had a school in Philadelphia that was a government-run, government-operated school. That school decided it was no longer going to teach the Bible in schools. That's part of why it came to the U.S. Supreme Court. At the U.S. Supreme Court, it's interesting, in the 8-0 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said that, look, if, if you're a government-run, government-operated school in America, you will teach the Bible. We're not going to have a public school that won't teach the Bible. 
So what we have experienced in our lifetime, we have a tendency to think this is the way it's always been. No, no, no. What we've experienced, we're really the first generation that's broken away from three centuries of having a spiritual foundation for what we do in government, politics, constitution, everything else. You'll find the more secular the nation becomes, the more progressive it becomes, and the more anti-constitution it becomes. It's a bad direction for us to move. Uh, the president keeps saying we need to defend our democracy, save our democracy. Speaker Pelosi said it this week. No, we don't. Read the Constitution. Constitution, Article 4, Section 4, prohibits America from ever becoming a democracy. We are a republic. We pledge allegiance to a republic. There's a huge difference between a republic and a democracy. The Founding Fathers said that democracy was actually worse than a dictatorship. They didn't want a democracy, and the Constitution prohibits us from being that. But what happens is the more secular we become, the less we know, and the more we're willing to change things. So it's striking that the change really came in 1963, Abbott and Murray Collette. This is when the Supreme Court said in a case out of Philadelphia, in a case out of Baltimore, that, you know, this thing about reading the Bible in schools, we're just not going to do that anymore. And it's interesting that in that decision, the court acknowledged that taking the Bible out of public schools was without historical or legal precedent. There had never been a legal decision before that to do that. There had never been the precedent for doing so. I actually just picked up a book recently that was done in Australia showing the Bible school, showing the laws in America and all the states and how the Bible was used in all the states in America back in, in that period of time. So it was the Supreme Court who stopped that, and we think this is the way it's always been. But these two cases, that's where the change occurred. Now, Benjamin Rush is one of the 250 folks we call founding fathers. John Adams specifically said that out of all the 250 founding fathers, he said the three most notable founding fathers, number one is George Washington, makes sense. Number two is Ben Franklin, got that. He said number three is Benjamin Rush. Now most of us don't even know who Rush is. There's a lot of credentials for him. Uh, he signed the Declaration, he ratified the Constitution, served in three different presidential administrations, started the first abolition society in America, started the first Bible society in America, started the Sunday School Movement in America, started five universities. He's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He's the most famous doctor in American history, trained the first black physicians, started academic education for women. Just unbelievable what the guy did. And it's interesting, in talking about the Bible in schools, he did a piece in 1790 and 1791 on keeping the Bible in schools, but this, this man called the father of public schools under the Constitution said very simply, the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. Now that's turned out to be right. And when we stopped reading the Bible in schools in 63, you now find that America has the highest level of biblical illiteracy in any measured history. We've been doing polling for 120 years. We do a lot of national polling. We've never had the degree of biblical illiteracy that we have at this point in time. And it goes back to what he warned about 200 years ago, that if you ever stop reading the Bible in schools, you're not going to read it the rest of the time of your life. So what happens today is we have a lot of biblical illiteracy in the nation. Uh, statistically speaking right now, only 9% of Christians read the, read the Bible on a daily basis. Now, that's not good. This is the book from which freedom came. This is the book from which so many of our institutions were built. As a matter of fact, if you look at federal practice and procedure, which is the, the set of multiple dozens of volumes that deal with practicing federal law, and in volume 30, there are 20 pages on how the Bible is the basis of all the due process clauses in the Bill of Rights. The right to confront your accuser comes out of Proverbs 18:17. The right to testify in your own defense, Acts 22:1. The right to confront your accuser comes from John 8:10, etc. We used to know the Bible, and as a result, we had a much sounder constitutional approach to government. 
but now even Christians don't know the Bible very well, and only 6% have a biblical worldview. Most Christians cannot tie a Bible verse to capital gains tax or to minimum wage or to anything else that is a current issue, and yet we used to be able to do that in previous days. We use the Bible for economic policy, for due process and, and criminal justice and every other area. So the biblical literacy that we have right now has caused a lot of people of faith not to understand God's institutions. Now, most people know what those institutions are. The first institution we would point to that we believe is created by God is the family. That goes in the Bible to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God made Adam, God made, made Eve, they had kids, and God said, this is good. So that's the or ordination, if you will, the beginning of the family. The second institution we see in the Bible is that of civil government. It occurs in Genesis 9. Prior to Genesis 9, there's no indication of civil government in the Bible. You had, at, back in Genesis 3, you had Cain kill Abel, he murdered his brother, and from there it goes downhill. People start murdering and raping and pillaging and stealing. God says, oh, let's just wipe it out and start again. So here comes the flood, and then when Noah gets off the ark, in Genesis 9, as Noah gets off the ark, God gives him what are called the Noahide laws. There are seven civil laws. He says, Noah, here's what's going to happen to murderers, and here's what you do to thieves, and etc. And so that's the first civil government we find anywhere in secular history or religious history. It occurs in Genesis 9 in the Bible. So government is an institution ordained by God. We believe the church is an institution ordained by God that's really paralleled after the book of Exodus where the God says, here's the congregation, here's the temple, here's how corporate worship is to occur. So that's kind of the type and shadow of the church today. So these are the three institutions that generally we acknowledge are God-ordained institutions. We usually know less as Americans about government today than any of the other institutions. We'll defend family fairly aggressively, church fairly aggressively. We don't understand how, how intimately the Bible is tied to government, but we used to in previous generations. For example, if you look back to the signers of the Declaration of Independence, the single source cited most oftenly during that period of writing the Declaration is a book done by John Locke, who is a philosopher lay theologian out of England. He did a book in 1690 called The Two Treatises of Government. Richard Henry Lee, who made the, dec the, the, made the motion in Congress that we should separate from Great Britain, that we should do a Declaration of Independence. He signed the Declaration of Independence. Richard Henry Lee said, quote, we copied the Declaration out of Locke's Two Treatises of Government. So this is the single source that they identify most frequently as the source of the ideas that we have in the Declaration. Declaration, of course, is what sets forth the American philosophy of government. They start with 161 words that, that set forth six principles of government. They follow with 27 grievances showing how Great Britain has violated those six principles. They have a concluding clause that we're, we're pledging to, to create a, a new nation with the, with the firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. So that's your general overview of the Declaration of Independence, but they point to this book as the source of it. It's interesting, this book references the Bible more than 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. If you ask even most pastors today, what does the Bible say about government? You're not going to get more than eight or ten verses usually. And in this little book, and by the way, this book has been reprinted. We have an original. We have 160,000 documents, uh, original documents. We get everything from Columbus stuff all the way through the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. We've got tens of thousands of the handwritten documents of the Founding Fathers. And you can, you can read this book today. It's, it's available. They've reprinted it. It's a really good book. 
But that's the book that was the basis of American government, and it's referenced on the Bible. But what happens today is, of the three institutions, we know them pretty well, but we don't do much with government, or at least a lot of Christians today don't, because they've heard separation church and state, or that's a secular institution. And I have a friend in Georgia who says, you know, what that means is we're really two-thirds Christians. We do a pretty good job on family and church, but we do a lousy job on government. And he talks about the fact that we just don't get involved in that like we should. And as a result, uh, we really need to become three-thirds Christians. We need to be back in every one of those arenas, just as we were in all these previous generations. And that's an area where even our friends of faith often bail out on us. This is something they don't really want to get engaged in because that's not what believers do. That's not what faith people do. It really is what faith people do. They get involved in all three of those areas. So what's happened is, as a result of not having Bible in schools, not reading the Bible, etc., we've come to a period of biblical illiteracy. But in addition to that period of biblical literacy, there's another problem we've got as well. The other problem that we have is we have an obsession with the national focus. And let me see if I can explain it this way. Everybody gets their news from somewhere. If you're leaning to the right, you're probably going to watch something like Blaze or Epic Times or Newsmax or people still watch Fox or whatever they watch. If you're on the left, you're probably going to do MSNBC or CNN or whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody gets a heavy dose of national news. You've probably never heard a story on Jacksboro, Texas, or Yukon, Oklahoma, or Waterton, New York, or Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, but we get a heavy dose of national stuff. And as a result, we can have a pretty intelligent conversation over what's happening with Congress, what's happening with the Supreme Court, and what's happening with the White House. All of us can do that. But here's the deal. If I ask someone, name the President of the United States, nearly everybody can do that. If I say, name the president of your local school board, nearly nobody can do that. If I say, name three federal legislators, easy. If I say, name three city legislatures, three city council members that make your city laws, can't do it. If I say, okay, name the judges, name two judges in the Supreme Court, can do that. Name two of your city judges, can't do that. We, we know a whole lot more about what goes on nationally than we do locally, and it's actually easier to change local stuff than it is national stuff. I mean, I'm involved all the way, top to bottom, the federal level. There's a whole, even with all the contacts I've got, I've got dozens of members of Congress on my cell phone. We talk and text recently. I can't get them to change their positions in Congress. I can't get the House to do something different. I can't get the Senate to do something different. I can't get the President to do something different. I can't have influence there, even with all the connections I've got, but I can have a lot of influence on the local level, and that's where you get healthiest from the bottom up, not the top down, but our media, because we have this obsession with the national focus, we, we know more about what occurs nationally than what occurs around us, and it's easier to change what occurs around us, and if we do that in, in all of our cities, we'll have a changed nation. So let me take you through the American War for Independence as a good example. If you go back to the first four battles fought in the American War for Independence, if you take the top right, you have the Battle of Lexington. The top left is the battle three hours later, the Battle of Northbridge at Concord. The bottom left is about two hours after that, the road to Boston. And the bottom right is the Battle of Bunker Hill. So the first four battles in the American War for Independence. It is interesting that in all four of those battles that started the American War for Independence, there's not a single account of anyone contacting George and saying, George, we need help and we need it now. We're really outnumbered here at Lexington. You gotta send troops. Nobody contacted George. 
And the reason was their attitude was similar for every one of them. They said, look, George, you got a lot of stuff to do. This is our area. We'll take care of this. We need you at Brandywine. We need you at Valley Forge. We need you at Yorktown. We got this. And so the attitude throughout so much of the American War for Independence was not for looking for national help. It was looking for, we've got this on the local level. We're, we're going to take care of the battles. And so if you go through those first battles, you take that first one, Lexington, 70, 700 British come to town, and they come to town on their way to Lexington, but they're violating the British Bill of Rights, violating their own codes, violating all sorts of stuff. And so we're told in our history books that 70 courageous Americans went out there to face down the 700 British, and that's not true. What happened is the Reverend Jonas Clark took 73 guys out of his church out there to face down the British. It was a church that went and said, hey, this is our community. You're not going to do this in our community, and we're not letting you go to Lexington. Uh, the problem was he had been teaching them about what the Bible said about having war because he'd been saying, look, the British have been killing Americans for five years. We may end up going to war, and if we do, there's some things you need to know about what the Bible says about war. You cannot start a war. God will not bless an offensive war. He will bless a defensive war. You can't start anything, but if they do, you can, you can get engaged. So he would not let his guys have the first shot. We fell mightily that morning. It wouldn't have mattered if we'd had SEAL Team 6 on the field of this. We still would have lost because everybody's got a single-shot musket. So when you have 700 single-shot muskets firing at 73 single-shot muskets, it's really not a good deal. And on top of that, our guys aren't allowed to fire until after they've fired the first shot. We hold our fire because we're not going to start anything. If they do, we'll respond. So that's where 18 Americans hit the ground that morning. Now, the British then marched, no British did. The British marched on through Lexington because they're on their way to Concord. When they got to Concord, we're told that between three and 400 courageous Americans met them at Northbridge at Concord and said, you're not coming into town. And that's not quite right either. What happened is the Reverend William Emerson let his church out there, and he had between three and 400 men in the church and said, guys, you're not going into town. We know what you've got planned, and that violates British law. You're, you're not going to do it. And by the way, did we hear that you fired at our brethren over at Lexington? Does that mean you've started a war? Game on? That's where the first British hit the ground that morning because now we're able to return fire. The British commander said, this is not a good deal because I faced 70, now I faced three to 400, and I've only got 700 guys. Uh, if this keeps up, I'm going to be outnumbered really seriously. I need to get some reinforcements. So he does a forced march back to Boston, and that's the road to Boston. It's a running battle that lasts for 19 miles, and he was right. He was outnumbered because in that period of time, 4,500 Americans came and lined the road on both sides shooting at the British they went by. The British were trying to burn down all the homes and burn all the crops and destroy all the fields. And the Americans said, we're not going to do that. Now, where'd that 4,500 come from? Well, Reverend Payson Phillips led his church out. Reverend Benjamin Balch led his church out. It was congregations coming to defend their rights. You also have the same thing with the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, Reverend Joseph Willard said, well, we got, a, we got two companies here in the church. Let's go get with all the other churches. We'll defend Boston. So you find all this early stuff in the American War for Independence, the way it started was all local stuff, local bodies, local communities, local groups getting together, churches getting together. And so this local focus is what you find. And we ended up winning the national battles because of the local battles. Do you know there's more than 120 battles that occurred in the American Revolution? Now, if I ask you to name five, you probably could, but you can't name 120. And this is where most of the battles were. And most of the battles, quite frankly, if you look at the names of these battles, you probably never heard most of them. 
See, they're local battles. Nearly all the American War for Independence was local battles. But we won so many of the local battles that we ended up winning the national battle because we won the local battles. That's where our focus was, was on something we can win, we can attain. We can do this at the local level. And so 120 of these battles at the local level, I mean, this is what happened. And so the, the result of that is that we ended up winning a national victory because we won enough local battles. Now, we did have some national battles, and again, Brandywine and, 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 and Yorktown, et cetera, and we needed Georgia times like that. But even there, it was local troops that showed up and supported what was going on. So a national leader was there, but it was still the local folks that won it. And so that local focus is really, really important. And that happens also on elections. So let me take you through some voting numbers on elections, because we talk about voting in elections. We're coming up on, on a voting cycle. Uh, this is a really busy time for us. I'm, I'm about in a different state every day, doing about three meetings a day. Uh, we're, we're working in 76 congressional districts that we think are flippable, where we can get somebody different in. They'll be much better. So we're all over the country. I'll leave here just in a few hours. I'm headed to Minnesota. The race is up there, and then we're going to Wisconsin. They're going down to Ohio. Just all over the country, there's a lot of races going on. And when you look at elections, it's really not the way we think it is. Now, constitutionally, to be a voter, there's two constitutional requirements, one statutory requirement. The two constitutional requirements are very simple. You have to be 18 years old. You have to be a legal citizen. If you can do that, 100% of 18-year-olds who are legal citizens can vote. Now, easy stuff. The statutory requirement is you have to register to vote. That way we make sure you don't vote seven times or somebody doesn't vote seven times for you. Real simple. This is where it starts falling apart. 65.3% of American adults are all that are registered to vote. We have roughly 100 million Americans who have said, I don't care what happens to the country, I ain't going to be part of it. The problem is that involves 40 million professing evangelical Christians. Now, if they were to get involved, you'd have a whole different culture from what we got now. We wouldn't be seeing the stuff that's going on with the schools and all the, the, the drama that's going on, but they've been unengaged. Now, there's two types of elections in America. The one that has the highest turnout is the presidential election. In the last 11 presidential elections, the average voter turnout has been 54% of registered voters. That's not 54% of adults, that's 54% of 65.3%, which means only 36% of adults vote in presidential elections. It takes half of that to win. Then when you get to the elections like we have this year, we call them off-year elections. This is when we elect our governors, our U.S. senators, our legislators. In the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout has been 38%. But it's not 38% of adults, it's 38% of registered, which is 38% of 65.3%, which means 26% of adults choose our governors, choose our senators, choose our legislators. It takes half of that to win. So what you're looking at is in the last 11 presidential elections, one out of five Americans chooses the president. Four out of five do not choose the president. In the last 21 off-year elections, you're looking at one out of eight Americans chooses governors and U.S. senators and legislators, state legislators, federal legislators. The others don't. So when you look at the local level in this, what you get at the local level is local elections have about 6%, but that's 6% of registered voters, 6% of 65.3%, which brings it down to only 4% of actual adults voting in city elections, and it takes half of that to win. I'll give you an example. If you go to Los Angeles, which is the second largest city in the nation, the city of Los Angeles is so large, the population of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 separate individual states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, that's like being a, a governor in 23 states. 
Now, Eric Garcetti is extremely faith hostile. He's hostile on, on family. He's hostile on morals. He's hostile on traditional values. But he shut all the churches down, leave everybody else in L.A. open, but we're shutting churches down. Eric Garcetti brags about the fact that he was elected with 2.9% of the vote. That's how he became the mayor of Los Angeles, 2.9% of the vote. You have the same thing that happened in Houston, the fourth largest city in the nation. Uh, Houston, the population of Houston is larger than the population of 20 states, is the fourth largest city. And they elected Anise Parker as mayor, and they elected her with 3.3% of the vote. She was the first open lesbian mayor elected in Houston, but her deal was when she got in, she passed a city law that says anybody who thinks marriage between a man and a woman, that's now a crime, and I will punish you if you believe that marriage between a man and a woman. So she went after basically the whole city, but she was elected with 3.3% of the vote. So uh, this is the type of stuff we see across the nation. Let me take you to another city, Fort Worth. Six years ago, Fort Worth School District and Fort Worth is my backyard. That's where I grew up, was in the Fort Worth area. And the school district there said, you know, we've been thinking about it and we really don't think gender is an issue anymore. We think kids should be able to choose whatever bathroom they want. They should be able to choose whatever locker room they want. They should be able to choose whatever shower they want. We're not gonna do gender anymore in the Fort Worth Independent School District. Now what happened was, at that time, the Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, under President Obama said, I should have thought of that, brilliant idea. So he came up with the national policy that says any school that gets federal taxpayer dollars, you don't do gender anymore. Well, that's 97% of the public schools don't do gender anymore. And so what happened with this, this is particularly disturbing to me because if you know anything about Fort Worth, Texas, the nickname of Fort Worth, Texas is called Cowtown, USA. It's called Cowtown because it is a cowboy kind of a town. We literally, twice a day, at 11 in the morning, 4.30 in the afternoon, we shut down North Main Street and we have a cattle drive up and down North Main Street. That's part of who we are as a people. Now, I'm a cowboy from Texas. I got the ranch, got the, got the cow, I got the cows, got the horses, got the pickup truck, everything that goes with it. And you may know nothing about the country, it doesn't matter. I can take any of you to my ranch in Texas, I can put you behind the cattle herd and any one of you can tell me the gender of every critter in that cattle herd. It, it's, it's not a hard thing to do. And you're going to find there are only two genders. Oh, imagine that. God said, and he made them male and female. It says that four times in the scriptures. So this came out of Fort Worth. It came out of Cowtown, USA, that genders don't really exist. So I looked... I was really disturbed over this. I looked, Fort Worth is the 13th largest city in the nation. It has, 900, uh, and eight, has 918,000 adults there, voters there. And I looked at the, the president of the school board who came up with this stupid policy. He was elected with less than 1,200 votes. It's 1,182 votes out of 918,000. And so I looked in his district where he ran, and I quickly found dozens of evangelical churches there that could have kept him out of office. I found one church that had 3,000 registered adult voters in that church. That one church could have saved the whole nation from six and a half years of gender nonsense that we've been going through if they would have just taken care of what was around them. I'll give you two more examples. If I take you to Bentonville, Arkansas, this is the hometown of Walmart. There was a Christian lady in Bentonville who said, no, 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 you're not doing this in our schools. And so she ran for school board in Bentonville and she got elected. In a town of 40,000, there were a total of 35 votes cast in the election. She got the majority of the 35 votes. And I'll point out, any Sunday school and class in town could have elected her to the school board. Just, it's that, it was that easy. 
If I take you to Riceville, Iowa, it's even a better story. Riceville, Iowa, up in the northern part of Iowa, there was a farmer up there who said, you're sure not doing this in our schools. So he ran for school board, got his name on the ballot, he's running for school board. Turned out that on election day, he got busy on the farm and was unable to vote. He didn't vote that day. And don't think that he lost by one vote because that's not what happened. What happened was not a single person voted in the school board election. If he had voted for himself, he would be sitting on the school board just by voting for himself. See, this is local elections. So we get focused on all this national stuff. Local stuff is where you make the changes. That's where things are so significant. So if I return back to Benjamin Rush, I told you he's named the father of public schools under the Constitution. It's because of this piece that he did in 1790. He said, guys, we've been 13 nations for more than 150 years. Now we're one nation with 13 states. If we're going to stay unified, because we've been so different for so long, if we're going to stay unified, what do we have to teach in our public schools and education to stay unified? And he said the purpose of public schools is threefold. He said the number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. And the number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now, nearly every faith person I know would say, no, no, no. You got the order wrong there. It should be God and family and country because family is so much more important. And he said, no, you're wrong. It should be God, country, and family because he pointed out that if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy of your family. And that's what we're finding out right now. If you didn't see two days ago, this was a headline two days ago, uh, Governor Newsom that signs a bill that removes children from parents who oppose transgender treatments. So the state is now in charge of what the parents can and can do. And we see this all over the states. Mike Ferris, you're going to hear from him in a minute. Mike Ferris, what he does with parental rights. This is the kind of stuff we see all the time. This, the government has become the enemy of the family because we didn't stay involved and keep control of the government. And so we let a bunch of knotheads get in there who believe exactly the opposite of what most Americans believe. And now we see that as public policy. So this is where we found out, you know, we thought schools were pretty decent. It turns out that they're the real source of so much of the cesspool stuff that's going on whether it's CRT or whether it's gender stuff or whether it's a gender transition closets in elementary and, and you're giving out birth control to 10-year-olds and, and what's this thing? You've got a quick escape button on the internet so the kids can hide from their parents what they're looking This is what schools are doing. This is why so many have started running for school board. And it's significant at that level because those are all local elections. Let me give you some examples of where things are changing. You may not have heard in the news. Uh, Virginia two years ago, Virginia had a real problem. Their governor, Northam, said the problem is we have some babies that are actually surviving abortions, and that's just not a good thing. So instead of taking care of them, they passed a law that says if a child survives an abortion, you can go ahead and let that child die after the abortion. Don't do anything to save life. Well, the governor of Maryland said, well, I can beat that. And he came up and said, we're going to allow women to do an abortion 28 days after the child is born. So you can do an abortion 20, and Newsom in California said, well, I can beat that. We'll do 30 days. We'll let you have an abortion for 30 days after the child's born. So this starts in Virginia, and what happened in Virginia with a crazy governor like that was Faith Winds. I work with Faith Winds, we partner, and Faith Winds went into Virginia, and there were 312 churches we identified in Virginia. There's 312 churches, and there's tens of thousands of churches in Virginia. But these were 312 churches interested in making a difference, and they're not big churches. None of them were mega churches, they're all community churches. And significantly, with those 312 churches, they, uh, they said, well, let's, let's look in our own members. Let's see who believes what we believe, and there's never registered to vote before, and let's get them out to vote and get them to vote values. 
And so what happened was they found 77,000 people in those 312 churches who had never registered to vote before at all, never voted. They got them registered and they got them to vote. And the new governor, Yonkin, won by 64,500 votes. Now there's your margin of difference right there. And he's a totally different kind of governor. As a matter of fact, he doesn't care what the media thinks. He's already reversed all the stuff. He even, he didn't have a preacher pray in, in his, at his inauguration. He prayed his own prayer at his inauguration, prayed in Jesus' name and got Winsome Sears and got the Attorney General, Jason Myers. And, you know, they... So working in a number of states right now, one of the things that those 312 churches did, 2 Timothy 2.5 says, no one can be crowned unless they run according to the rules. Most folks don't know what the rules of elections are. So out of those 312 churches, got 1,343 people to be election judges and poll watchers. Watch the elections. Those 1,343 found 5.2% of the votes is fraudulent. They found one guy who had registered to vote in 27 different locations. They found a cow pasture where 17 people voted out of the cow pasture, didn't have a structure there. That group of 1,343 out of the church found 5.2% of the vote as being fraudulent. Now that'll win an election too. You take 5.2% out. And so we're doing that in a lot of states this cycle. We, Michigan is one of the states. This happened just this week in Michigan. Michigan working there on elections and got a lot of church people working on poll watching and checking lists and et cetera. And we found that there's a guy named Jason Daniel who voted twice in 2020. Now, that's not good. But what makes it interesting is Jason Daniel was born in 1850. He was part of the Civil War. That's pretty interesting. A guy from 1850 voted twice in 2020. 170 years old he voted. But you see, in Michigan, one of the lawsuits going right now is the Secretary of State is fighting to keep dead people on the voter rolls. As a matter of fact, in Michigan, there's more than 20,000 who have been dead for over 20 years that are still on the voter rolls. But apparently, that's good for 40,000 votes, the way they do it in Michigan, apparently. This is actually an editorial cartoon from 1864. This cartoon, 1864, shows Democrats going to the graveyard and getting names off tombstones so they can vote in the election against uh, Abraham Lincoln. So voting, voting fraud is nothing new. This has been going on for a long time. That's why we have to get involved in this and look at what happens. Let me run through some headlines real quick on things that are happening across the nation. Uh, candidates opposing critical race theory, COVID-19 mandates win Minnesota school board race. I know what happened up there. Christians got involved, churches got involved, and they won a whole bunch of school boards. I love the one out of New Jersey. A 19-year-old who saw his senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns unseats the incumbent in the school board race. So, this kid said, you cost me my senior year. I'm running against you. He beat the incumbent by 17 points. And by the way, it is really nice to finally have an adult on the school board in Jersey. It's just a lot of fun. Then you've got, see Denver right here. And above that, Colorado Springs. 1,500 churches got together in Colorado and took 78 school boards. Christians took the school board in Denver. That's a huge, progressive, blue, wacky city. They took all four school boards in Colorado Springs. Same thing in Wichita, three out of four. Treasure Valley, which is Boise. Boise is the craziest city in Idaho, and Christians got the school board there. In Dallas, 51 churches got together in Dallas and said, we can do better. And there were 15 school board seats. They won all 15. They got 15 out of 15 school board seats. Dallas, the 51 churches recruited candidates out of their own churches. 
qualified, competent people, got them elected. Uh, Houston, churches got together in Houston. They took the school board in Houston. That's 2.3 million people in Houston. And they're great candidates, great godly candidates on the school board in Houston. Fort Worth, they got 20 out of 21 seats in Fort Worth. In Miami-Dade County, they got 25 out of 30 seats a month ago in Miami-Dade County. And this is going on all over the nation. You're not seeing it in the news. This is how you get healthiest from the local level up. And we're starting to see people of faith get engaged and become three-thirds Christians, quite frankly, and get back into the civil arena. And the more we do that, the more we're going to see things turn in the right direction. So notice that all of this is a local focus. This is, this is a big deal. And it's the kind of stuff that we're going to have to do for sure if we're going to make a difference in this. So what I want to do is challenge you with all you're doing with COS. Don't lose your focus on the local things going on around you. That's where you can get healthiest. Organize people at the local level. Don't get caught up with what's happening at the national level. You can't change Pelosi. You, you can't change Schumer. You can't change Biden. But you can change a whole lot of people and put them in the pipeline because those school board members are going to run for city council. They're going to run for mayor. They're going to run for state rep. They're going to run for senator. And then they're going to be in Congress someday. You get healthy from the bottom up. And that's the way we, we have won things always in America. So with all you're doing, stay healthy there. God bless you guys. Thank you all. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.